Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon, and thank you for listening. Here with me today is Sharon Barker, co-founder of Mabel Wadsworth Center and the former director of the Women's Resource Center at the University of Maine. Shortly after Sharon retired, the Women's Resource Center at the university abruptly closed without any notice to the students engaged with the center. About three years, and due to dedicated activism by the Student Women's Association, now called the Feminist Collective, The University of Maine now has a student-run women's resource center where they offer free emergency contraception, tampons, pads, condoms, and menstrual cups. They have a large feminist library and offer a space for student groups to meet. The center has one work-study student for 10 and a half hours a week as well as rotating volunteers to keep it open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. On today's show, Sharon Barker explains the importance of women's resource centers on college campuses and discusses what happened to the center at UMaine. Hi, Sharon. Welcome Hi, to Reproductive Left. Thanks for being on the show again. You were on it a couple years ago. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, one of our first guests, actually. I'd love to have you start by talking about just um, women in higher education in general. So what are some of the barriers women face in higher education, and why do you think it's important for universities to have women's resource centers? Well, universities really reflect the broader society. So I think a lot about access within higher education really mirrors what women face in all other spheres and sectors. You know, there's economic barriers that women face to, you know, being able to go to school. There's just study after study after study that indicates that women tend to be tracked into lower-paying fields, uh, whether their choice or, you know, what they see is available to them. And so the, the, you know, the higher-paid fields, the more prestigious fields tend to be male-dominated. If you look at higher education institutionally, the higher up the chain of command you go or the food chain, uh, the worse women do. So women really are better represented in community colleges. If you go into four-year, you know, private schools or or liberal arts types of colleges, you see more representation of women. Uh, When you get into the research institutions or you get into the more science, engineering-dominated fields, you see less representation of women. And, of course, in, the, in Maine, the only research institution in the state is the University of Maine. And there have been studies that have documented that, you know, women tend to be underrepresented and women tend to be uh, less in positions of power. Now, th- you know, there's some exceptions to that, and things have changed over time. 
1972, women made 82% of what the male faculty made. And in 2009, they made 83%. So that hasn't changed. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any insight on why there hasn't been more progress. Well, again, it's, it's very similar to what's going on in society at large. You see a very, very parallel track. Um, it's explained away by market forces. If you ask why men get paid more, they point out that it's the, that it's the fields they're in and not the gender. And, the, and that the higher paid faculty tend to be in the male-dominated fields. And they, and they say that is what the market will bear. Uh, and you have to pay more to get good faculty in these fields. And it's not, so, it's not true uh, in, in the fields that are more female-dominated. They create these arguments that seem to indicate that gender isn't the factor, uh, that women could be an engineer just as easily, they could be a business if they did, they could you know, also make the big bucks, except that doesn't necessarily hold true in practice, even in the higher paid fields, even in law, medicine, and those other fields uh, that are at the top of the pay range, women in those fields make less than men do. So it's a really, it's a very complicated topic, and it really goes back in my opinion, to the structural place women have in society, which is in taking care of things that are not as well rewarded, you know, like families, like health care, like education. Th- those are considered more appropriate female fields. And whether or not that's stated directly or just assumed, that's a message that a lot of women hear. And women, I think, also have a, have, are trained, or it's part of their socialization, to feel a responsibility to do, to make life better, and not just for themselves, for people around them. And so th- that I think it, it's it's uh, nobody ever does anything for just one reason. It's always a complicated mix of reasons why people do anything. Uh, but certainly the way that women are treated, the way that women are, uh, the expectations on women uh, are very different for those on men. And women who are very successful in fields are also treated very differently than men who are successful in fields. And this is a topic that requires a whole lot more conversation. Women's Resource Centers are found on campuses across the country. Can you just give our listeners a background on how they got it started and how long it's been part of the University of Maine specifically? Sure. Well, I think the the, uh, women's centers grew out of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s, and certainly the college campuses were the hub of political activity during that era. And at the uh, University of Maine, predating the Women's Resource Center, the activism on campus was in a student group called the Women's Center. Uh, and, th- and that's just the way an awful lot of um, these kinds of organizations got started on college campuses. The typical women's center at a college or university in the United States tends to be in student affairs and tends to work with students. That is by far the most usual way that it's structured, and that is not the way that it happened at the University of Maine. And part of that was was very deliberate. The Women's Resource Center at the University of Maine came about because of a very comprehensive study that was done about the University of Maine and the status of women there back in the late 80s. 
And it was a very effective study. It not only was very well documented, very well represented in the people who served on the task force, but there were very specific recommendations for each administrative unit on what needed to be done to address the inequities of women on campus. And so there were very, very clear-cut guidelines. And out of that, there were several things that happened at the University of Maine, and the Women's Resource Center was one of them. Uh, there was also a council on women established, so it would be more of a campus-wide uh, advocacy body to represent the experience of women on campus. And also the Women's Studies program, which also happened really differently at the University of Maine. Most campuses started with a small Women's Studies program and then grew from there. The University of Maine started with a project called the Women in Curriculum program, which did not have a Women's Studies uh, hub, but rather support across campus for faculty to inject information about women and women's contributions into the core curriculum. So instead of having women's studies courses, there were courses in the English department that focused on women and in the history department. And so after the 86 report came out, there were a lot of efforts to kind of boost the participation of women. Uh, And so the, the Women's Resource Center was created, the Council on Women was created, And the uh, Women in Curriculum program was expanded to develop a women's studies program that would have the the core courses. The Women's Resource Center was not put into student affairs. Uh, It was a very deliberate decision to put the Women's Resource Center in a unit that both seemed to make sense in terms of the mission of the Women's Resource Center, but also had an administrative head that was supportive and would protect the center because there was no real conviction that this would be any kind of long-term effort uh, without some really strong administrative support. And so it was put in uh, research and public service, uh, which was considered the stronger place for it. And it was considered a public service program and that that was going to be its focus. And that was different. That was different than a lot of places. And that was when I was hired to come in and be director of the Women's Resource Center. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. Here with me today is Sharon Barker, co-founder of Mabel Wadsworth Center and the former director of the Women's Resource Center at the University of Maine. After the interview, be sure to stick around for the Ask Mabel segment. What would you say the um, Women's Resource Center added to the culture of UMaine? The Women's Resource Center, I saw it as a resource for women who needed something. It might have been an advocate uh, to help figure out how to address wrongdoing. It might be a sympathetic ear. It might be a, a, a really smart idea that somebody didn't know what to do with. They could come to the Women's Resource Center and and help leverage that or find people. Uh, I saw it both as a resource for women and and a a message and a structure for the university to use women as resources. That we brought to the table voices that were missing, that we had ideas and perspectives that were not included historically and through no necessarily ill intent but it was a way to leverage. It was a it was a way to help light fires, to give people a place to stand, to make women, both on campus and in the community, stronger in their work. 
And another thing that, I, that was really vital to the work for me, and it was because I believe that you know when you have an organization and you have staffing, you both need to consider what the mission of the organization is and also the talent and the attributes of who you have in place. And I had a strong community presence and network, both on campus and the community. And so what I really tried to do is bring those networks to bear, to be able to direct women to other women that could help them or other organizations to make sure that women's organizations in the community had access to the university and the resources and the people there. Um, so it was a resource for women, but also really strongly seeing women as a really needed resource for the institution and the community. So why did it close? We are in a very interesting time uh, where there is this belief that many of the supports that we've had for women over the past couple decades are no longer needed because women now have an equitable place in society. The, the facts, though, and the data just doesn't back that up. You know, women you know, still are not making equal pay for equal work. There's still a disproportionate amount of violence against women. It was really interesting to see the recent UN report on the status of women in the United States and how we're really lagging behind the rest of the world and yet what the U.N. women were most struck by was the fact that American women didn't really believe this, that we just felt like we were doing better than everybody else experienced to the contrary, uh, data to the contrary. I want to say that, that it closed a year after I left, but the, but the dismantling of the Women's Resource Center started happening several years before I left. I certainly could see the writing on the wall. Uh, we had very, very strong, well-researched, well-developed programs and initiatives in place that were being taken out of the Women's Resource Center for what I thought were very weak and ill-informed reasons. So I could see that, you know, the uh, previous administration had no real interest in maintaining the Women's Resource Center. And so some of the decisions that were made the last few years I was there definitely weakened the Women's Resource Center. Uh, and it's and it's things that, that I had been routinely called on to do or to represent I wasn't anymore. Uh, or uh, the Safe Campus Project, which was a very, very successful project to address uh, um, violence against women without any consultation, without any discussion. It, with me, as the director, it was just taken under the program and assigned elsewhere. Uh, so this is something that I, I could see happening, and I, I really do think it reflects uh, a lot of the backlash against some of the gains that women have made, uh, the lack of realization that we still need to have that kind of advocacy, uh, that women's voices are not heard with the same degree of importance that men's voices are heard. Uh, and so it wasn't a big surprise to me when, when they closed the Women's Resource Center because I had the, the supervisor and there was another administrator on campus that had definitely been a champion at getting space, resources, staffing. Uh, both of those administrators, for different reasons, left. Uh, and when they left, there really was no strong advocacy in the upper administration. And, um, and not in terms of uh, hostility or ill will, but certainly not engaged, not understanding the importance and not being familiar with the work of the center. And so it became very vulnerable. And without a director there to, to speak for it or, or anyone up the chain of command that was willing to speak for it, you know, times are tough. It's easy to blame everything on budget. 
and so it was blamed on budget, although I really don't believe budget was the critical factor. Since our podcast is called Reproductive Left, I do want to bring up issues related to reproductive rights, and I wanted to know if you think the Women's Resource Center um, impacts the sexual and reproductive rights of students or the lack of Women's Resource Center, and do you see it as a reproductive rights issue? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought this up because it's a point I want to make. Because most women's centers around the country are in student affairs, and because many people within the upper administration didn't really understand or know what was going on in the Women's Resource Center, there's been this assumption all along that it was about students. The reality is is that, that very little of the work that I did myself as the director focused on students. I dealt a lot with faculty, staff, community organizations. I represented the university on statewide councils and groups. What I did, because I thought it was very, very important, there were two areas uh, that had directly to do with students that the Women's Resource Center was very involved in. Um, I served as advisor for the Student Women's Association, which was the activist women's group on campus, and they were able to use the Women's Resource Center as a meeting place, as a way to do their organizing, to reach out to other women, to have events, whatever. So that student group... And I was the advisor, but but they were the ones that did the planning and did their own programming and decided what they were going to do. The other group of students that I worked with were the students that I hired in the Women's Resource Center to do the work of the center. And I was pretty much, it was pretty much restricted to work-study students, but they were able to get paid for this. And they served as a as a staff extension for, for me and for the Women's Resource Center. And so if we had activities going on, the students often were the ones that were staffing those projects. In addition, students that I hired that were very interested in the work could come to me with an idea and say, I really want to do something. And, and they were able to do that within their role as an employee of the Women's Resource Center. So it became a Women's Resource Center-sponsored initiative But my perspective, what it was, was leadership development and professional skills development for the students who had the autonomy to do what they wanted to do within the Student Women's Association, within programs out of the Women's Resource Center that they designed. And the work that they were most interested in doing, nine times out of ten, had to do with either abortion and reproductive rights or sexuality information. And so many of the activities... That, that came out of or were supportive by the Women's Resource Center were student-led and were focused on those particular issues. Uh, and there really, I don't really see anything on campus that would continue that or pick that up. Uh, the Student Women's Association continues to exist, very active, very strong young women. They really aren't part of the university structure. They're part of student government, which is a separate organization altogether. You know, and so good for them. I still think the university has a real responsibility to its students to provide very needed services around violence protection and and reproductive rights information and referral without there being that institutional support, that organizational foundation. It's very difficult, much more difficult, not impossible, but much more difficult for students to carry on that work independently. And it was the reproductive rights and the sexuality work 
uh, of the Women's Resource Center, definitely, definitely, it was always the students that took the lead on that work. Thank you for taking the time for the interview. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for doing this, Abby. Hi, Terry. Thank you for being on Ask Mabel with us today. I have a few questions for you that all are about dysmenorrhea. We're going to start with just having you tell us what it is. Hi, Abby. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here with you today. Dysmenorrhea is a medical term for pain with menstruation or your period. And there are two types of dysmenorrhea, primary and secondary. Primary dysmenorrhea is the common, although certainly can be painful, menstrual cramps that are recurrent, coming typically with each period, and are not due to any other disease entity. Pain usually will begin about one or two days before your period starts, affecting lower abdomen, back, or thighs uh, with discomfort that can be mild, or it can actually be quite severe and interfere with normal daily activities. The more severe the dysmenorrhea, it may also be accompanied with nausea, vomiting, and even diarrhea and fatigue. Uh, These types of period cramps often become less the older uh, you become, and many uh, folks will say after having um, a full-term pregnancy that their menstrual cramps stop. So a little encouragement for down the road. The second type of dysmenorrhea is called uh, secondary dysmenorrhea. This is caused typically uh, by a disorder of the reproductive organs. Examples of some of those disease entities might be endometriosis, adenomyosis, uterine fibroids, or a uterine infection. This type of dysmenorrhea usually begins a lot earlier in the menstrual cycle and lasts longer than the common menstrual cramps. Typically, uh, this pain doesn't seem to be accompanied, though, with nausea, vomiting, uh, or diarrhea or fatigue. The primary dysmenorrhea, those pains will usually occur about one or two days before the period starts, and it's a lot more limited than secondary dysmenorrhea pain. What is the cause of dysmenorrhea? Menstrual cramps are caused by contractions in the uterus, and this is potentiated by a chemical that our bodies make called prostaglandin. When the contractions are too strong, they actually compress the uh, blood vessels that supply the uterus, so the blood supply is restricted, and it reduces, therefore, the oxygen to the uterine muscle. When oxygen is deprived from a muscle, the muscle hurts. So that is the cause of this pain that we have with our periods. How can we treat this condition? How can people get some relief? There are many things that we can do to improve this discomfort. The first thing I'd like to mention is to stay hydrated. If we drink more water, it will decrease abdominal bloating, which actually makes your whole uh, abdomen feel a little less pressure and discomfort comfort, uh, even if you are having the cramps. Um, Avoiding alcohol will help with uh, better hydration because it does seem to potentiate actually dehydration. Um, If you're not a water drinker um, because you don't like the taste, putting lemon or uh, mint or maybe cucumber uh, in the water may help you tolerate drinking so much water in a day. And we do recommend about six to eight glasses a day. 
diet is a key. Um, we do encourage folks to avoid uh, fatty, sugary, and salty foods. Also, refined white foods like white sugar, white bread, pasta. There are some natural anti-inflammatory foods that you might include in your diet that might help with the cramping, like cherries, blueberries, squash, tomatoes, and bell peppers. Fish, which is high in omega-3, beans, almonds, and dark um, green leafy vegetables can all, all be helpful in cramping. We do also encourage uh, folks to avoid caffeine, including coffee, tea, soda, chocolate, and energy drinks. But we ask you to uh, think about the fact that these are addictive. Uh, this is an addictive medication, caffeine is. And so to withdraw from it rapidly, you could have uh, symptoms of withdrawal, like a severe headache or even nausea. So taper yourself off of uh, caffeine if your intake is, is rather high. We can also purchase over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen, naproxen sodium, or aspirin. Uh, these are called NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, medications, and that will help uh, with the cramping. We spoke earlier about prostaglandin being a chemical that causes our uterus to contract that our bodies make naturally. The NSAID medications interfere with the prostaglandin, and I often will recommend to women who have a predictable menstrual cycle and know basically when their period is going to start to even consider beginning the NSAID two to three days prior to the onset of the period because they may be able to have that positive antiprostaglandin effect and really keep the menstrual uh, cramps a lot less in, uh, by doing it in advance. Certainly applying a heating pad, a hot water bottle, or a rice bag or sock to your abdomen really helps your abdominal muscles relax and may work just as well as ibuprofen. And certainly a hot shower um, can be helpful. Moving around or exercising um, allows your body to release endorphins. And we know that one of the positive benefits of endorphins is it makes us feel good. And so it kind of diminishes our perception of pain. So walk, run, swim, do Tai Chi or yoga, whatever works for you. And if fatigue has been an issue with your dysmenorrhea, counterintuitive as it may sound, exercise actually will give you more energy in the long run. Uh, massage may be helpful, so massaging your abdomen for at least uh, five minutes periodically um, during the day will increase the blood flow to the uterus. I remember we spoke about the pain results from inadequate blood flow, so improving the blood flow should decrease uh, the discomfort with the cramps. Um, you can also use essential oils like uh, clary sage or lavender or marjoram as part of your massage. Acupuncture or acupressure has been uh, shown to be effective, and some women have found that just uh, rubbing the fleshy part between their thumb and index finger has been effective in decreasing pain. Yoga positions like bridge, the staff pose, and bound angel have been really um, soothing to the abdominal muscles for a lot of women, and they have had improvement of their cramps. Sleep hygiene may be something to consider as well. The better sleep we get, the more likely we can keep our menstrual symptoms at bay. Having a routine sleep pattern where like maybe listening to soothing music or having a cup of herbal tea, taking a warm bath, good sleep promotes overall health and may be important in managing these menstrual symptoms as well. 
Taking a nice warm bath uh, can decrease pain and relax tense muscles. And you can even add essential oils, you know, in your bath water to decrease stress and tension. You can also talk to your healthcare provider if these modalities don't work to decrease your discomfort. And you might consider a medical approach like using oral contraceptives, which have been shown to markedly decrease menstrual cramps. And also, there is an IUD that has progesterone in it. There are actually two, Mirena and Skyla, which can suppress the occurrence of the period, which ultimately does suppress menstrual cramping. That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, visit our new and improved website, mabelwadsworth.org, and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on weru.org in the archives or at mabelwadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. Tune in next month at our new time, the first Wednesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or at weru.org.